Hello, church. If you would open to Hebrews 11. Uh, You can put a marker in Judges 13. We'll be in 13 and 14 for the sermon, for most of the sermon. But I want to read Hebrews 11 to start us. Uh, We'll actually begin in verse 32. Hebrews 11. This is God's Word. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back the dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats and destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, Father, what a legacy, what a heritage that we uh, have followed in, that we are joint heirs of. Um, These saints that have gone before us, Lord, we want to learn from them. There are things that we should imitate, and there are many things we should not imitate. And so, Lord, would You give us wisdom as we look at Samson today. Lord, that he would become very real to us. So real that we would actually see many parts of his life as our life. And Lord, that You would give us grace and help to live for You as Samson did. And that the ways Samson didn't live for you and sinned against you, Lord, we would not sin against you and we would repent and change and learn from his failures. And so, Lord, give us this wisdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started a series uh, called Common Problems, and uh, it is more interesting than it sounds. because we're addressing the issue of biblical illiteracy, which doesn't sound that interesting. Uh, But it is interesting because uh, the way in which we're addressing biblical illiteracy is through the common problems, which we mean by that, the same problems people uh, struggled with a few thousand years ago, we find in our own lives. Uh, They're just different names, psychological terms that we've put on many of these problems. And so when we come today to Samson, uh, what I want to argue is that if he were to sit with a psychiatrist in our day, they would label him narcissistic. 
That would be the medical or technical label he might get according to the new DSM-5 categorization uh, for, um, psycho- for psychological, the psychological term. So he, uh, the way that I can even make that type of judgment isn't because I'm a, a doctor or a psychiatrist myself, but because there isn't any objective measurement that's being used. It's not like they do a brain scan on somebody or they do blood work and you get some sort of objective evidence that this person has narcissism. Um, what they do is look at behavior patterns. And when we look at the behavior patterns of Samson, we can conclude this guy is checking all the boxes of uh, a narcissist. And so um, it, it's not that this man has some disease that they just hadn't labeled yet or diagnosed yet back in that day. And, and we're looking back going, he's got this disease. Um, what we're seeing is a man who is self-centered, entitled and uh and very manipulative and so uh i want to take two weeks on this because there's just a lot here um two weeks on samson we won't do that with every character but with him uh, i think it's it's necessary there's four chapters we'll take roughly two this week and two next week and i just want to jump right into this so go to uh, judges 13 we'll be in verse one we'll start working Verse by verse through this, it says, The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So you remember the pattern uh, that we saw last week of, of the book of Judges, of this whole time in redemptive history, is that God has, through Joshua, the leadership of Joshua, brought Israel into the land, And they are in this promised land, but yet they have not uh, removed the land of all the other nations. So the Amalekites and the Philistines and the uh, Amorites or the Midianites, these are still uh, in the land and they are influencing Israel toward idolatry. And so Israel will fall into idolatry. They'll begin to be oppressed uh, by their sin and by all of the, uh, the, the nations surrounding them. And then they'll cry out to the Lord. And then the Lord, in response to that, will send a deliverer or a judge uh, to bring them out of this oppression. They'll live in freedom for a little while, and then the cycle continues. And that cycle continues in the book of Judges 12 times. We see this same cycle occurring. And uh, the sixth time we studied last week with Gideon, uh, he was the sixth of Israel's judges, and now uh, Samson is the twelfth uh, judge. Some of us uh, this week actually went to a lecture called uh, Why Study the Pagan Classics? And, um, and one of the things that I would like to point out about this uh, story of Samson is that it's much like reading the pagan classics, uh, the early Greek mythology. Um, you've got these brilliant literary details, you've got these plot lines, you've got these realistic, complex characters, uh, you have all the, the, the pagan idolatry and immorality like the pagan classics, but it's scripture, Christian scripture that we're reading here. And um, in fact, in this first uh, section, in chapter 13, Christ himself actually shows up uh, in his pre-incarnate form, uh, what we often call a theophany. 
which is made up of two Greek words. Theos means God, and uh, phanios is to appear. So God appearing to people, we get these theophanies, and we get one right here uh, at the beginning. Actually, some scholars say that every time you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, you're actually seeing a theophany. You're seeing a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, and so we see that here in verse 2. It says, There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, uh, Samson's dad. And his wife was barren and had no children. And here it is, the angel of the Lord appeared. Now here's what's interesting. Nobody cried out for God to deliver them. Every other time in the book of Judges, someone cries out, Israel begins to cry out, and then God sends some help. At this point, nobody's crying out. Uh, nobody's calling on the Lord uh, to deliver them. I think it's one of those situations where you just get used to it. You get used to your sin. You get used to your suffering. Um, you know, Sometimes you get so comfortable with sin, you don't know what it's like to not have it. You don't know what it's like to not have that particular addiction or that particular thing that plagues you, that's plagued you for so many years. You just get used to it. And so you stop calling out. Um, other times you just lose hope because maybe you were delivered from it and then you fell back in. And then you were delivered from it and then you fell back in. And this has happened with Israel. And maybe they've lost hope. And they've stopped calling out to God because over and over again, they've ended up back in the oppression, back in the sin. And so they've forgotten about God, uh, but God has not forgotten about them. And so in verse 3, he sends this angel of the Lord, appears to the woman, to Samson's mother, and said to her, You are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, he shall be called, he shall be called to drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the birth. So uh, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. We know Samuel was a Nazarite. There's other Nazarites. Uh, Samson is to be a Nazarite from birth. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord tells this to Samson's mother. She believes it, goes and tells Samson's father, and he believes it. And then Samson's father says, I want to know how to raise this boy. I want to make sure I do this right. Can this angel of the Lord come back and give me some clarity on how to raise this son who is to be a Nazarite? And the angel comes back to him. And in verse 12, Samson's dad asks the angel, when your words come true, listen to the faith of this father. When your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? Any parents here have that heart? God, just tell me what to do with my kids. They're your kids. I want to raise them right. That's this father that Samson has. And the angel repeats the instructions for holiness. And then in verse 15, uh, this father uh, asks the angel to stay for dinner. The angel declines and says, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And he said, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you or we may worship you. And the angel of the Lord said, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? 
And so there's, there's a lot of reasons why people think this is a pre-incarnate Christ or a theophany. Um, the first one would be this time and many other times, uh, the angel of the Lord is later called by the person who they show up before, the Lord. They say the Lord, or they say God has appeared to me, as in the case here. So that's one significant reason. Another reason would be that people fall down and worship the angel. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, that's not good. You should not do that to anyone but God. So if an angel allows you to worship them, a created creature, then that angel is allowing you to sin against God. And that's not a good angel. Or it may be that that angel is God. And so it's appropriate to bow down and worship that angel because that is the second person of the Godhead that is a pre-incarnate Christ. And so many throughout history have believed in these theophanies and have seen these in, in these narratives. Um, this is interesting in verse 19. Let's keep reading. It says, uh, And Manoah the, took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on a rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. What a description of the Lord. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell down on their faces to the ground, and the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. And Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So he's convinced at this point we just saw God, we're going to die. And his wife is very sober-minded and, and smart, and she reasons this out for Samson's father in verse 23. She says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And then Samson was set apart with this Nazarite vow and raised by these two godly parents. And listen to verse 24. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. I believe he's regenerate. But the Spirit of God is not only with him but in him. It says the Spirit blessed him, the Spirit is working in him and with him. Uh, that's not something that's said about a non, an unbeliever um, in this way. And so I believe that Samson is among the remnant of believing uh, Jews. Now here's why I can say this with absolute certainty. Absolute certainty is because of Hebrews 11. Verse 32 that we read just a moment ago that said this, Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson. Jephthah, David, Samuel, it's mentioned uh, Abraham and Moses, okay? And then somehow Samson's name makes it in the list. And it says, through faith, through faith, they conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of the weakness, uh, became mighty in war, put our foreign armies to flight. It lists ten things. Nine of those are true of Samson. That he did by faith. Now here's the difficulty when we come to a character like Samson. 
At least I find this to be a difficulty. Um, you ask, is he righteous or is he sinful? And we want, like, I want to put him in a box. I want to put him in a category. And, um, and, and that's a difficult thing to do because sometimes he's operating in faith. And he's, it says in Hebrews 11, he is doing these things by faith. But then other times we see he's acting in unbelief and just utter selfishness. He's a pure narcissist. At other points, doing horribly sinful things. He's murdering uh, with revenge. He's, he's torturing animals for sport. He's, uh, he's getting foreign wives. He's seeing prostitutes. All right, This is not a, a godly man at many levels. It, but it's difficult to just create this flat, one-dimensional character. Because he's a complex character, I will argue. Um, there are times he's a good guy and you're like, okay, he's on the Lord's team right here. And then there's other times you're like, he is working against God, rebelling against God at this moment. And I think looking at him as a complex character is, is actually very helpful because, especially in our culture in our day and age, we want realism, don't we? That's, that's something I think our culture at this point has made quite clear. We want real. We want something authentic. Right, postmodernism and, and, and existentialism and different stuff that people really value authenticity. Okay? Um, even though <laughs> there's these weird cultural contradictions where we say we want something authentic, so we like reality TV shows, but then we also like filters. You know? And we also like to change our appearance on social media where we're not really that real. And it isn't like our real life. So it's these weird, these weird things. But I do think that underneath that, uh, there is a desire for realism. There's a desire for authenticity. And that's why we like complex characters. Here's an example. Um, go back 20, 30 years ago, and you take like the Batman character. And you had the traditional Batman. It's like, all right, he, he means well for Gotham. You know, he's a pure man. He has a pure heart. He's, he's a good guy. Go to now, fast forward to the Black Knight, or Dark Knight, whatever it's called. Um, this guy, you can't figure out if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Because you're like, even the good things he's doing are motivated by evil and revenge. And he has all these other ulterior motives. And he becomes this complex character. And, and we like that in our, in our generation because it seems real. It seems to be accurate to the way that most people are. And so that's Samson. He's this multi-layered, complex, multi-dimensional character. Sometimes he's serving uh, himself, very narcissistic. Other times he's serving the Lord. And then there's some self mixed in there with it. And John Calvin uh, once said that even our best works are mixed with sin. Even our best works are mixed with sin. And, And so even though we want guys... Pure hearts, clean hands. Uh, We know the sad reality is that even the best works that we do for God are probably still mixed with some measure of sin. And, And we know that we can be sitting here in a worship service and genuinely singing to the Lord and genuinely worshiping the Lord. And then three hours from now, you can be arguing with your spouse or mad at your children. And any number of sins being committed. And that is the type of people that we are. And you say, well, uh, are we hypocrites? Maybe. Some. 
but we also might be complex characters like Samson. Now, let me just say, um, for sake of clarity, I don't think a non-Christian is as complex as a Christian. Um, and what I mean by that is like a, take a non-Christian narcissist, for example. Um, they're not very complex because uh, from God's vantage point. Because it says whatever is not done from faith is sin. And a non-Christian can't do what they do from God's vantage point is sinful. Now on a human level, they may be able to do all kinds of good things. But from God's vantage point, he says, uh, even, and through Isaiah, even your good works are filthy rags about a non-believer. Uh, in, in Romans 3, it says that no one does good, not even one. That's not complex. That's pretty straightforward and clear from God's vantage point about a non-believer. But then you take a Christian and we see something very different. Um, oh, well, this is what uh, Luther he, uh, he had a Latin phrase for it. I'll give us the English. He, he called it simultaneously sinner and saint. That's a Christian. That's a complex character. Simultaneously saint and sinner. So you have this real ability to be a saint of God, a holy worshiper of God, one who serves the living God in real genuine ways, but at the same time you're still a sinner. That's a complex character. Uh, Paul in, in Romans 7 saying, I want to do what's right. I have this desire to do what is right, but there's this other law at work in my members making me do what I don't want to do, the evil I don't want to do. That's a complex character. These two realities at work, and I don't think Samson is exactly like Paul. I don't want to draw too much of a connection. I don't think Samson's so bothered over his sin like Paul was. But he does have this dual nature of the Spirit of God at work in him and sin still at work in him. This makes it hard. Um, I, I think we could put Samson in the category of a Christian narcissist, if we could call him that. A, a spiritual narcissist. He's not enslaved to sin. He has the ability uh, to be free, but he continually gives himself over to sin. The, uh, the psychological journals and things will say about a narcissist that you can't actually free a narcissist from narcissism. Um, they're not curable. Uh, you can only help them not be as narcissistic, as selfish. Um, and I think that, that I would actually agree with that unless they're a Christian. For a believer indwelt with the Spirit, we're not enslaved to sin. And therefore, we are not enslaved to a life of selfishness and entitlement and manipulation and all the things that characterize a true narcissist. Now let's, get, let's look back at Samson for a moment and see some of the things I'm talking about. So uh, go to chapter 14, verse 1, and it says this. He went down to Timnah. Two things there already. Went down is a significant uh, phrase in the Bible even geographically, many times when someone is doing something sinful, it'll say they went to the east or it'll say they went down. Those two geographical directions are often associated with sin. He's going down. Secondly, uh, he went down to what? Timnah. That word means forbidden. So he's going down one 
a geographical direction that, le- that often renders sin, and then he's going to a forbidden place. And you go, why would this Nazarite, this one set apart from birth, this one that the Spirit of God is set apart to deliver Israel, why is he going to Timnah? Why is he going? Have you ever wondered that about yourself? How, how could I, someone that is filled with the Spirit, the blood of Christ, Christ died for my sins, he's given me a spirit, I'm a member of the church, yet I keep going to the forbidden place. You ever wonder that about yourself? How, does the, how do these two things, how can they both be true? How can I go to the forbidden place and how can I be this person that God has truly said I am? It says in verse 2 that he went down to Timnah and then he came back up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Which is not only does that sound bad, I mean it is bad, but it's bad also because this is a Philistine. And Israel, Israelites weren't to marry Philistines. But his father and his mother, I think overly gentle, uh, their response was, said, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our own people that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, get her for me. Get her for me. Why? For she is right in my eyes. That's a loaded That takes us all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? Eden, fall into sin. The the, the food was good to the eye, a delight to the eyes. It it, it echoes a pre-fall depravity of Genesis 6 where it says the sons of God saw with the eyes the daughters of man and they took as many of them uh, as they wanted. Right in the eyes also echoes 1 John, the flesh and desires of the eyes. And then right in the eyes also is later in Judges 17, it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own. And so clearly we have here, uh, very, very clear in this first verse, he is sinning. He is doing that. Get her for me, for she is right and my eyes. Now here's why this gets complicated. Look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for or because he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now that's a righteous thing. That's actually a commendable thing that he's doing, that it says he's doing. This is a complex character here. We've got some sort of mixed motives going on. And I really believe this is what we're seeing here, and we'll get into this more next week. I really think that Samson thinks he's spiritually stronger than he actually is. There's a a high level of deception in Samson's own mind. He knows he's physically strong. What does that mean in Samson's case? The fact that he has physical strength. It means he has spiritual strength. The Spirit of God gives him the... It's not like he's in the gym every day and that's why he's physically strong. This is a a supernatural spiritual strength that he has that means God's with him. And so because that strength is still there, he assumes God's with me. It must not really matter if I take the Philistine wife or not. Because God's still with me, he must not care. You see how this 
rationalization begins to happen? Could, could he be overestimating his own spiritual strength and favored status with God because he's got the Philistine wife and God is still strengthening him? He, and his motive is, well, I am trying to take out the Philistines. That's why I want the wife that's a Philistine. Because I want to take them out. And that's what I'm supposed to do. You see how the deception works? You got this good motive and you mix it with this sin and you justify the sin because of your good motive. Has anyone here ever done this? I mean, this does sound quite familiar. I remember um, in my own life, I was thinking back, um, there, I used to watch, this was a number of years ago, I used to watch these uh, true crime shows. And um, ter- I mean, really terrible, uh, evil type stuff that people would do to each other and then there would be a retelling uh, of the events and an ex- explanation of all the things that were happening and I would watch this um, and here's what, how I would watch it. I would watch it going, I want to understand the human psyche. Like that interests me and I, you know, I studied some psychology in the past, that stuff interests me I, and I'm like, this is very interesting from a psychological perspective into the human psyche and how people and why people do what they do. And so I'm thinking this is educational. But then I would read verses in Scripture that said things like, uh, be babes in evil. Don't even speak of what they do in secret. Keep oneself unstained by the world. And I would go, ooh, you know, I want this education. I want to learn this thing. It's good, it's good, it's good. Then I'm reading these verses and it's like, but it's staining me. It's affecting me. It's messing with my head. How, how do I keep these two things together? And I eventually realized I'm trying to say something is good that God is telling me uh, isn't good. And um, I eventually had to stop. But that's the type of deception that can happen to us. Samson marries a Philistine because he says, what? I'm supposed to take down the Philistines and I'm going to do that eventually, but I want to marry her. And then look at how this works. Let's let's press on verse 5. A young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. See, God is still with him. And although he had done... But he didn't tell... He he ended up not telling his parents about this. Look at verse 7. Then he... And she was right in Samson's eyes. And after some days, he returned to take her. There's his sin again. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. For there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out with his hand and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now that's a weird story for many people. It's really not that complicated. I think the reason it's there is because he's taken the Nazarite vow And even his parents took the Nazarite vow. You say, why would it include the little detail about how he didn't tell his parents? Well, because the angel told them to take a Nazarite vow as well. And and he's uh, playing with a dead carcass. Uh, Now he's sitting there uh, going with this dead body, taking honey from it, and then giving some to his parents without even telling them. He doesn't have regard for the command of God or for this Nazarite vow but yet he's still being spiritually strengthened. And so I think he's justifying God must not care about my sin because he's still with me. And because I am seeking 
an opportunity against the Philistines. That we're going to get more into the deception of this next week when we get to Delilah. There's another complex character here besides Samson that I want us to see, um, and that's God. Do you realize that God is the most complex character in the whole Bible? Uh, and I, and don't, don't misunderstand me when I say that. I do believe in the doctrine called the simplicity of God, which is an amazing doctrine, and we should know that God is one, but He's not made up of parts. That's what the simplicity of God means. God is one, but He's not divided into parts. Our London Baptist Confession says this, that God is without parts, uh, without a body and passions. It says He is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. It goes on and on. These early Baptists were basically saying, God is not made up of parts. He is a whole. Uh, he's not, for example, 5% holy, 5% loving, 5% just, 5% righteous, 5%. And you put all the attributes of God together and you get God. And if you take one or two of them out, you've kind of got a partial God, but he's kind of got, this isn't, they're saying this, he is all of who he is, the sum total of all his attributes, and all his attributes are whole. And, therefore, his actions never contradict his character. So when he's acting in judgment, that doesn't contradict when he acts in love or mercy. Those things can both be perfectly at play uh, at the same time. Now, here's why I say this. Let's take it a step further. How does this relate to how God, this simple God, this whole perfect God, relates to sinners and works through sinners like us? Let me show in the text what I'm talking about. Samson says, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. That's Samson's sin. That's his own volitional choice to sin. God didn't do that. He did that. Okay? Look at the verse again. Verse 4. His mother and father did not know that it was from the Lord. What is the it? The it is the sinful desire that he had to get a Philistine wife. It was from the Lord. Samson has made the choice. She's a Philistine. And, and, and by the way, side note here, this isn't like some uh, text in the Old Testament where if you get a foreign wife, she becomes part of Israel and comes under the commands of God, and so he basically makes her an Israelite. That's not what's happening with, with Samson here. She doesn't become an Israelite. He becomes a Philistine. Her, it's clear in the text, we can get there next week, um, that the father throws a wedding and the father still has authority over the wife. She, he actually gives the wife to his best man when Samson runs off and gets mad about something. This, Samson's becoming part of the Philistines, not the reverse. Very problematic. A addressing is that decision of Samson to get the Philistines? The Bible says that decision was from the Lord. So did God cause Samson to sin? Answer, no. Did God tempt Samson to sin? What does the Bible say in James 1.14? God tempts no one to sin. That we sin because we're lured and enticed by our own desire. So Samson saw the Philistine woman and he was lured and enticed by his own desire. But somehow that decision was from the Lord. 
You see the complexity of God here in how he wills things. How can he will two things at the same time? Listen to this first generation reformer, Theodore uh, Beza, here, um, where he explains this. Without God's most righteous decree, although God is not the author, listen, God is not the author of nor share in any sin at all. Both his power and his goodness are so great and so incomprehensible that at a time when he applies, say, the devil or a wicked, a wicked man and achieving some work whom he afterward punishes justly, he himself nonetheless affects his holy work as well and justly. These things do not hinder, but rather establish, listen, by which all things decreed, whatever was to happen at definite moments. He also decreed the manner and the way in which it was to take place to such an extent that even if some flaw or sin is discovered in a secondary cause, fault or flaw from God's eternal counsel. So what he's suggesting is God has a multi-layered will. There are layers of causality that are at work and why God does what He does. Now, I give that Beza quote, and you can forget about that if you want, and listen to these Bible verses, um, which I think are more helpful. I'll give us a few. Judges 9, uh, God commissions an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem to bring about His will. God commissions an evil spirit to bring about His will. Luke 22.3, Satan leads Judas to do. Satan leads Judas to do what Acts 2.23 says God brought about. Or in Exodus, uh, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to hate Israel. And then it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart to hate Israel. 2 Corinthians 4.4, God or Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Satan does that. And then in Romans 11, it says God sends a blinding spirit of stupor. 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan stirs up David to take a sinful census. Count all the people. That was sin. Satan stirred him up to do that, it says in 1 Chronicles 21. But in 2 Samuel 24.10, it says in some sense God was behind that. Job 1.12, Satan had to get permission from God to torment Job, but when Satan had taken Job's family, Job's health, Job said this, the Lord took it away. And the Lord can bring good or evil. And he says God did it. And so here's how John Piper sums this up in a little bit simpler terms. He says, when we say that everything that exists, including evil, is ordained by an infinite, holy, and all-wise God to make the glory of Christ shine more brightly, I mean it. One way or the other, God sees to it that all things serve to the glory of His Son. Whether He causes or permits, He does so with purpose. For an infinitely wise and causing and permitting are purposeful. They are part of a bigger picture of what God plans to bring to pass. So sinful actions uh, with these marriages of Samson, uh, the murdering of 30 men, the, the, the issue with the animals that we'll get to next week, we could go into the breaking the Nazarite vow, all the stuff that Samson's doing that's sinful. 
Is that God um, ignoring that or just reacting to Satan's sin? Here's what I would say. God is working through it. He's not working around it. He's working through it. It is part of the plan. And, and John Piper says, especially his people's most tragic sins to work his global purposes for the glory of his son and for his people's good. That's what Judges 14 is about. Our passage. So, um, why are, are complex characters like Satan in the Bible? And some people, especially after what I just read, would say, well, it seems like what you're advocating uh, would lead someone to, to be able to sin however they want. It's a license to sin. People like Samson exist in the Bible to show us sin isn't really that bad. You can basically do what you want, and God even somehow works it into his plan. And Paul would say, what? By no means do we sin that grace may abound. By no means do we sin uh, so that God gets more glory or somehow works it in his plan. This is, this is not why Samson exists in here. In, in fact, if you just read past what we're reading today or come back next week, I think we will all see that God has a lot of patience for Samson, but there are consequences for sin. There are absolute consequences for sin, for Samson and for us. And we should never take Samson to make a license for sin. What I think Samson is in the Bible for is for encouragement. For those who struggle with sin. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Whatever was written is for encouragement. Guys, the longer I'm a Christian, I'm sure many of you would agree with me. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize I need encouragement from Scripture. Not discouragement. I need, sometimes I do need a punch in the gut from, from the Bible. Sometimes. But most of the time, almost all of the time, I need encouragement. And I need encouragement so that I can have hope and so that I can endure to the end. We need encouragement. And God gives us men like Samson to give us that encouragement. It's, I'm not saying that because I read that from somebody. Look, look, Romans 15, 14 explicitly says, whatever was written in former days, that's the book of Judges, with people like Samson. It was written that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's why Samson's there. Because we're simultaneously sinners and saints. And we're complex like that. At one minute we're serving the Lord, and the next minute some fleshly Samson-like following the eyes, justifying sin somehow because we have some good motive over here and there's something else we shouldn't be doing over here. And Samson is an encouragement. Guys, how, how is Samson an encouragement? How? How? How is Samson an encouragement? He's an encouragement because he makes it to the end. He gets to heaven. Look, I'm more sure that Samson is in heaven than I will be in heaven. 
I have more confidence that he will be in heaven one day or is in heaven than I will be in heaven. How can I say that? Because Hebrews 11 says that Samson is in heaven. Hebrews 11.32, let me read it one last time. It said, it would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson. And he's in there with David. He's in there with Abraham, with Moses, all these godly people that you think, well, they deserve to be in there. Somehow Samson gets in there. And you go, how does he get in there? And then it says the answer, through faith. Through faith. And then it says this phrase right at the end, a very strange verse. Did not receive through faith, even though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, Christian church, Apart from us, they, Samson and the others, would not be made perfect. I think the us is the Jew and Gentile believers, the Jew and Gentile inclusion. The whole church of all nations are gathered together and those glorified saints won't receive everything they were journeying to and promised until all the full number are brought in. Samson's waiting for us, is what it's saying. David and and Abraham and Moses, they're all waiting for us, all of us to get in, including those who aren't in yet, so that we can all together enjoy Christ and His kingdom. But these ones have gone before us. And here's what I love, and I'll end on this. Um, Right after that verse in Hebrews 11, directly after it, that comes at the very end of Hebrews 11, directly after it, In Hebrews 12, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's the saints in heaven. Since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight of sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you come to the table, church, you think two things about Jesus. You should think about Jesus as you come here, not yourself. What do we think about Jesus? He endured the cross. He endured the cross. But he didn't just endure the cross. He also despised the shame of that cross. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is alive. He is risen. And he can do for us all we need him to do for us. Let's put our confidence in Christ as we come to the table. Let's rejoice in him together. Um, If you're new, uh, we, we take this supper weekly. This is for baptized believers, those who have placed their faith in Christ. Please come if that's you. If you're refraining, uh, this can be a meaningful time for you. If you read uh, the bulletin, there's some prayers in there you can read. And, um, and you, can, you can talk to the Lord through those prayers. Um, Father, Lord, we, we're too much like Satan or like Samson. Lord, we're, we're too much like him. It disturbs us. It bothers us how much like Him we are. We don't want to be like Him. 
Uh, we see too many sins. It makes us uncomfortable. How could we get to heaven? How could we be right before you if we're like Samson? But then you tell us he made it. And he made it by faith. And so, Lord, we pray that our faith would be in Christ. And that we would not stop this race, but we would throw off every sin in every way and finisher of our faith. Lord, would You reestablish our faith in Your Son at the table. As we come to the table and take this bread and drink, would we remember, Lord, help us to remember by faith what You have done for us. And Lord, as we go, help us to continue to proclaim Christ until You come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.